Amen. Well, welcome Bayou City. Thank you so much for joining with us. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor at our Tomball campus, and it is an honor to be with you to open up the word together. We are in um, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you flip to Matthew chapter five, that's where we're gonna be this morning, and that's where we're gonna be really for the rest of this semester. Matthew chapter five, and we're gonna be reading from verses 17 through 20. Let me read for us. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we open up your word, would you open up our hearts? Would you help us to see ourselves the way you see us? Help us to receive the forgiveness that we need and the empowerment that we need so that we might be your people in this place and represent you well. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, for the last 14 years, uh, I was ministering among the Aggies in College Station. And, uh, and I was an outsider coming in when I first came to A&M. Actually, the first time I ever came to A&M uh, was when I was a junior in High school, and just to kind of give you a context of how um, fish out of water I was when I first went there, my parents both went to the University of Texas. Uh, my older sister went to the University of Texas. My uncle and my aunt went to the University of Texas. Several of my cousins all went to the University of Texas, and so I was very familiar with all things UT. But as a junior in, uh, in high school, I was visiting colleges, and so we went uh, to visit A&M, and so I'm walking across campus and, and just seeing the different things that are there, and at one point, um, I step on an area near the MSC, the Memorial Student Center, um, and I step uh, inadvertently uh, to me on some grass. Now, for many of you, you, you're like, well, what's the big deal? It's, it's grass. Isn't that why it's there? One would think, but not at A&M, and there's a reason for that. The grass around the MSC is, is there purposefully uh, to honor those who gave their lives for, uh, for our protection, for, to protect us from, from foreign enemies. And so the Memorial Student Center, the grass around that is actually set purposefully there in honor of those who've given their lives for us. But I didn't know that. I'd never been there, so I wasn't aware of the rules. And so as I'm standing on the grass, there was a gentle spirit um, of a core guy who came by and said, get off the grass. And I was like, oh no, I, I didn't even know. And then I walk into the building, I'm wearing a hat, and he's like, take off your hat. And I'm like, I didn't know the rules. And, and if you've ever been to an Aggie football game, you know they've got lots of traditions along that route. You, you, you stand up and you don't cheer, you yell. There's all these traditions that are around there. And, and if you're not familiar, you can step on some toes and be confused and, and unaware of what's going on. And, and, and the truth is this, um, once you understand the heart behind the traditions, you get to understand why they're doing the things that you do. And a lot of it makes sense. And see, what Aggies want 
is not merely that you do the right actions, but that you have the right heart, that you understand who we are, and therefore you understand the things that we do, and, and you can go to all the games, you can know all the yells, you can do all the right things, but if you don't have the heart, they have a word for you. You're a two percenter. And they would say, if you don't bleed maroon, uh, you're really not one of us. And the reason I tell you that is because in a similar way, God isn't after two percenters. God wants people that are fully sold out to him. And listen, we can curate the externals. Right? We can say the right things, we can do the right things, but if we don't have the right heart, God says, that's actually not what I'm after. In Matthew 15, eight through nine, he says this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain and their teachings are merely human rules. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most prolific teachings of Jesus. And in order to rightly understand the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand what Jesus is asking for. He's not asking us to, to follow the right rules. He's asking us to be changed from the inside out so that we can be his kingdom people. See, we are supposed to be kingdom people. People that represent the king. People that lives, live lives that look like Christ. And there's a word that is used in this section to describe that quality, and it's the word righteous that we would be right externally and internally, that the things that we say would come out of a heart that is fully his. And so let me ask you a question. How's your heart? How's your heart? If we were to do a, a dissection of your soul, and if we could open up your soul right now in this moment, and we were to look at your heart, your desires, your values, what would we see there? Where your values look like the values that Christ has? Would your compassion look like the compassion Jesus has? Do you have the heart of our king? And that's the question that Jesus is really going to answer in this section. What does it look like to have the righteousness of Christ? What does it look like to have the heart of a king that not merely says the right things, but, but loves the right things? He opens up this section by saying that the standard of God has not changed. In verse 17 through 18, it says this in Matthew chapter five. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, when Jesus is giving this sermon in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he's a relatively unknown character. He had grown up in Nazareth in Galilee, and, and at that time in Jesus' day, there was a, a process that people went through in order to be vetted as a teacher. And so there was a normal process that the Pharisees and scribes would go through. And so they had a, a training program. So young Jewish boys would go to synagogues, their local synagogues, and, and be uh, trained in the word of God. And so they would, they would learn the Old Testament. And if they succeeded in that realm, they would be moved kind of to the next stage of, of secondary education. And at 13, if you were kind of the best of the best, you would study under a specific Pharisee or teacher of the law. But Jesus didn't follow that pattern. 
Jesus was an unknown person who was rising in, in fame and popularity. I mean, John the Baptist was uh, declared of him. He says, I'm not worthy to untie this guy's sandal. And, and he points everyone to Jesus and, and disciples start gathering around Jesus. And so he is popular. He's becoming famous. And the question of the scribes and the Pharisees is, well, what is this person's view of the law? Is Jesus going to forge his own path or is he going to submit to the law of God? And here's what Jesus says. I am submitting my life to the law of God. The standard of God has not changed. God has standards. And listen, everyone has standards. We all have standards. If you're single, you should have standards in dating. Like you shouldn't say, hey, are you a person? Great, we'll date. Like you should have better standards than that. You should have standards in cleanliness. Uh, when my wife and I got married, I had been living for years uh, in substandard cleanliness conditions. I had five guy roommates and we thought we were pretty clean. Uh, but once I got married, I realized I was living well below a legitimate standard of cleanliness, right? But God has standards and his standards are not good effort, but perfection. In Matthew 5, 48, it says this, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. See, God's standard for righteousness is perfection. And Jesus makes two imperative statements in this section. The first is this, that my teaching is in complete compatibility with the Old Testament. See, my teaching is going to reflect exactly what the Old Testament has been saying. What God has been saying throughout history, I am affirming in this moment. But my teaching, secondly, is contrary to the teaching of the Pharisees. My teaching is in complete compatibility with what God has been saying throughout history, but it is contrary to the teaching of the Pharisees. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. That word abolish means uh, to like turn over or to break down. It was often used to describe the tearing down of buildings. And he says, look, I'm not here to tear down the Old Testament law or the Old Testament teaching. And he says he calls it the law and the prophets. Now that's a way to describe all of the Old Testament. The law is considered the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets is, is large part the rest of those teachings. And he says, I haven't come to tear down any of the Old Testament. I'm speaking in congruity with what God has always spoken. He says for, in verse 18, for I truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He says not one dot, not one iota. What that what dot, what iota is, is basically a Hebrew letter. It's, it's the smallest of Hebrew symbols in the Hebrew writing. He says, look, there is not one I that is dotted or one T that is crossed that is going to go away from the law of God. The law is perfect. And I'm speaking in complete harmony with what God has always said. And at one level, we can say, man, we can affirm Jesus. Oh, man, he, he's consistent with the Old Testament. But if you're honest with yourself, that's actually a little bit terrifying. Because the law of God is perfect and holy and right. And the problem is not the law. The problem is in me. 
See, the problem isn't clarity about what God has always said. The problem is capacity to obey it. So let me give you an example. So um, when I was uh, in college, I I tried to do what all Christian guys do, which is uh, to learn the guitar and sing worship songs, right? And so I was dating Hillary at the time, my wife, and, uh, and so I'm kind of learning the chords, trying to strum along, and, uh, and as I'm learning, getting a little bit better, she just sits me down one moment, she goes, okay, hey babe, uh, you're not planning on singing, are you? And I was like, hmm, I guess I will put the guitar down, and I guess no, because there wasn't an issue of clarity. Hey, this, these are what good notes sound like. It was an issue of capacity. You are incapable of hitting it. For some of you, you feel this way in basketball, right? If I was to tell you, hey, I'm gonna teach you how to dunk, you bring the ball, you dribble along, and you fly to the air, and you slam it home. Like, it's, it, it's clear. This is what you need to do. And some of you, I mean, when you jump, it's like the, it's like the wings of a butterfly. Like, you fly through the air, and it's poetry in motion as you slam. For others of you, man, it feels like gravity is working a lot harder on you, right? Like, you know what to do. You just can't get off the ground to do it. See, the problem with the Old Testament law is that it is clear. It's just that we don't have the capacity to obey it. Moses, to the people of Israel, he, he led the generation out of Egypt, and yet they would not obey God, and so God allowed them to wander for 40 years, dying, a generation dying off. And in Deuteronomy, he brings in a new generation, the new people of God, and he reiterates the Old Testament law, the, the principles that God had given these people to live by, the law, the standards of God, and he tells them, hey, here is the law of God. Will you obey? And, and they're excited. They're like, yes, that seems clear. That seems right. We will do it. In Deuteronomy chapter five, almost like a a complete killjoy, Moses says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments. See, the problem is not the standard of God. That's clear. The problem is in here. See, there's a standard that we cannot reach. And there's a reason for that. It's because there's sin we cannot remove. Matthew 5, 19, Jesus goes on to say this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And and so you see this moment as Jesus goes on in this teaching where he, he throws a jab at the Pharisees. He says, the problem is this. It's not the clarity of the law, it's that you have lowered the standard of God. You have have decided to teach other people to not play by the rules that God actually has, to, to obey but not really completely, but to redefine the rules. And here's the problem, when we encounter rules that we don't have the capacity to obey, we either redefine the rules or we despair. I play chess with my kids, I have four amazing kids, a 10-year-old daughter, a eight-year-old son, a seven-year-old son, and a four-year-old daughter, and I play chess with them. And I play to win, okay? Um, I don't know how you play with your children, but my children uh, will, will lose until they can beat their daddy. And that's just the way I parent. You do what you want. This is the way that I parent my children. And so we'll play chess. 
And we'll sit in front of them and we'll, the board, and, and my kids, they actually know how the pieces move. They know where they go and, and they'll be moving pieces. And here's what inevitably happens. There's a simple rule when it comes to chess. When you move a piece and you remove your hand from that piece, that move is done. Unless you're playing with my children. And then they move a piece and suddenly they put the piece down, they release their hand, and they realize that was the terrible decision. I will kill your queen, young child, right? Like, I know I'm gonna take you down. And, and so I go to move to kill their piece, and they go, no, 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 I didn't mean to, and, and they try to move it again back. And, and every time I go, child of mine, you will lose to your daddy. You can have that move, but just know, you will make mistake after mistake, and I will hold you accountable to the move that you make. And they're like, let's redefine the rules. Let's, let me move only to places that I'm going to win, even though I know I'm gonna make mistakes. And, and, and it, hey, the issue is not just with kids. The issue is with us. You've seen a speed limit sign, right? It says speed limit, 70. What does that mean to you? I will drive 75. Plus, right? That's what that means to you. Or with your diet, you're like, hey, I'm gonna, I know it's been like, I put on the COVID-30, right? So we can't move and, and, and so I put it on, so I'm gonna go on a good diet and what do you do? You're like, I'm gonna follow the diet until it becomes inconvenient. And then I will redefine the diet. I will not eat celery. I will eat donut. And like, we'll redefine it in ways that we can win and the Pharisees were notorious for this. They knew the law of God and they couldn't keep the law of God and so they lowered the standard to things that they could do and they would feel good about themselves because they could accomplish these things, not the things that God really wanted. And so they created 613 laws that they would follow and they had all of these rules that they would obey so that they would feel good about themselves. To avoid breaking the third commandment, you shall not misuse the Lord's name. They refused to pronounce the name of God. To avoid sexual temptation, they had the practice of lowering their heads, even to not look at women. And they were, they were called, this is hilarious to me, the bleeding Pharisees because they kept running into walls. They lowered the standard of God because they knew there was a deeper issue. They couldn't change their heart. They couldn't change their heart. They could lower the rules, but they could not love the rules. They could do their best to obey, but they could not love to obey. And so they tried to redefine. But if you can't redefine the rules, if you actually look at the law of God, the fact that Jesus says, I, I'm not gonna take away a single one of these rules, these standards of God. Your other option is to despair. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about a man named Leo Tolstoy who believed and tried to live a life following the standards of God. He did his absolute best to follow every one of those rules. And here's what his wife says of him. He says, frankly, he failed to practice what he preached. His wife put it well in an in an obviously biased account, there was so little genuine warmth about him. His kindness does not come from his heart, 
but merely his principles. He says, I can obey externally, but there is no genuine transformed heart. There is no warmth in this man. Tolstoy says, I look, look at my present life and then at my former life, and you will see that I do attempt to carry them out. That's following all of the law of God. And it's true that I have not f- fulfilled one ten thousandth of a part of them. And I am ashamed of this, but I have failed to fulfill them, not because I do not wish to, but because I'm unable to. Teach me how to escape from this net of temptations that surrounds me. Help me, and I will fulfill them even without help. I wish and hope to fulfill them. You see his despair? He says, I want to follow God. I I want to obey, but, but I don't know how. And the apostle Paul saw this as well. In Romans chapter seven, he talks about his process of dealing with the law of God. He says, I looked at the law and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna obey it. And he goes, one by one, I can obey it. But then I got to coveting. Coveting, he says, don't covet, don't want what you don't have. And have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to not want what other people have? Don't want her house, don't want his car, don't want uh, his abs, don't want their job. Like, have you tried to not want what other people have? If you do, and you try to like, okay, I'm just only gonna want the right things, you see how incapable we all are. We can't change our heart to love the right things. The problem isn't the law of God, the problem is sin within. And you can white knuckle your way to obedience, but you cannot change your heart to love the things that God loves. And as the people are hearing this word from Jesus at the beginning of this sermon, as he's lining this out, when they're honestly listening, you see their hearts sinking. Because we can't obey the law of God. And he goes on to say, there's there's a standard we cannot reach. There is sin we cannot remove. But I'm here because there's a savior you need to receive. Matthew 5, 20 says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, we need a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. We need a righteousness, a rightness that goes beyond anything that they could achieve on their own. We need a righteousness that is outside of us and we need a righteousness that will transform us. We need righteousness and listen, we can't muster it up ourselves and there's two words that I skipped over in the teaching of this text and it was purposefully because they come into prominent purpose here. It's the word fulfilled and the word accomplished. Jesus says this, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. And Jesus did. Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God. 
He fulfilled the purposes of the law, and we don't have time to go through all of the fulfillment of Jesus' life, but if you were to do a study of all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, from his birth to his life to his death, every one of those was prophesied, but not just in the actions described in the Old Testament, in the perfections described in the Old Testament. There were moments when he stood in front of people and he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you has something against me? And they had a moment to accuse him of anything, and they don't. And one of the most amazing examples of this to me is the fact that Jesus' own brother became the center of the, of the church in the book of Acts. Now think about it. If you had to convince your siblings that you were sinless, imagine how that would go. They'd be like, I've got a couple examples of when you're not. His own brother says, no, I've got, I'm following this guy. That's an incredible evidence. And he fulfilled the entire Old Testament. The entire Bible is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Abraham. He's the greater sacrifice. He fulfilled everything that the law required in his life. He came to fulfill everything that was required of the law. And, it's, and he accomplished perfection. In John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross, breathing his last, and he says, it is finished. See, his death on the cross paid perfectly for every one of our sins. He frees us. He saves us. See, when it comes to the law of God, there's something that we need. We need a righteousness outside of us, and we can't do it for ourselves. We need a savior. We need someone to reach in and pull us out because we are drowning in sin. What does the world need right now in the midst of this COVID crisis? We don't need the right political leader, we need Jesus. We don't need just a cure for the virus, we need Jesus. Because we can go back to normal and miss Jesus and guess what, we are still lost in sin. We need Jesus to pull us out, to save us. When I was a little kid, um, we went looking for houses for, uh, uh, with my Uncle David and, uh, and his family. And so my Uncle David had a, a youngest son, Greg, and we were uh, two, born two days apart. And so we grew up together hanging out. And so we're going to look at houses um, to live in for their family. And, uh, and, but we're young boys. And so what do young boys do? anything but look at a house, like just anything that we can do. And at a point, we got so distracting, they say, hey, just go play outside, and we do. And in this neighborhood, there was like a small lake that had a cement slope to the lake. And so we decide to do what all boys do when they see a body of water and they're bored. They go to the edge. And so what we decided to do was to kind of dare one another, like how far can you go? How far are you gonna go? And so uh, at first Greg went in a little bit, like got his toe a little bit wet and pulled out. And I went in and got my toe a little bit more wet and pulled out. But then he puts his foot in and he hits algae and he slides in. And immediately I'm like, well, this is my my turn to be the savior. 
right? And so I go over to him and I try to pull him out, but we're so little, I, instead of pulling him out, he pulls me in. And so soon both of us are drowning in this little lake going, ah, and we start screaming. And as we're screaming, going, help, help, suddenly I see my Uncle David from across the way. Now, Uncle David at that time was a, was a larger man and he starts running and his belly was kind of going. And, and, and I, I, at a moment, I just kind of laughed because I'd never, I'd never seen my uncle run that fast. And he was kind of moving along. And he runs over and with his strong hand, he grabs my arm and pulls me out. And he steps in a little bit further and grabs my cousin's arm and rips him out and gets us in dry, in dry land. He's like, are you boys okay? And I'm like, yes. And that was amazing. <laughs> That's what we need. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven, but there is someone that's strong enough to save you. There is someone strong enough, and Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. He reaches in and pulls you out and makes you clean. All of our sin is given to Jesus on the cross. All of his righteousness is given to you. And you can stand before God, not because you deserve to, but because we can, because we've been forgiven and given the righteousness of Christ. But not only are we saved from our sin and given a new standing, we are given a new power. In John chapter three, there's a Pharisee that comes to Jesus's house at night. And Jesus, where he's staying, named Nicodemus. He has this conversation with Jesus and, and Jesus tells him something. He says, you have to be born again. And he goes, Rabbi, what are you talking about? I, I, I can't go a second time into my mother's womb. That would be awkward for everyone involved. Like this, I, this doesn't work. What are you talking about? He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He's like, what are you talking about? He goes, you're a teacher of the law and you don't get this? This is how God works. Salvation means we give, receive forgiveness of our sins, but we also see, receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. So not only are we saved from our sins, we are given the Spirit to empower us to live a new life. And then we follow the law of God because God looks inside your heart and says, that's, that's not right, that's wrong. And I know that. That's why you need to be renewed. And he sends his Holy Spirit to live in you, to shape and change your desires. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. See, there's a standard we cannot reach. There is sin that we cannot remove, and that's why there is thirdly a savior we need to receive, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is a gift. And if we don't get that, when we read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we will try to white-knuckle our way into the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. There is an obedience that we do as his people but it's an obedience that is empowered by his spirit. So Kevin, where do we go from here? Well, Christians should be the most humble people because we know we cannot save ourselves. And so there's some of us right now that we've been prideful 
because we think we are right. And I would encourage you to take a moment right now to say, Lord, am I right or am I receiving your righteousness? Am I right or am I trusting in you? Am I humbling myself before the the real king of the universe? And from that humility, we can have confidence that he's empowering us to live because we're loved by the king. And that's how God's kingdom people move. And pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you bring us humility. We thank you that you are righteous, you are pure, you are holy, and that we are, we are not. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that you are righteous, you are pure, and that we need to bow our knees to you if we are going to live the life you've called us to live. And I know right now there's so much tension, so many challenges, so many things that we're holding on to that are not you, Jesus. So Jesus, release our hands. Help us to submit our lives. Make us the people we need to be so that we can do the things you're calling us to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.